Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and we extend our summer hiatus with a rerun of episode 99. This is my conversation with Miriam Krinsky. Miriam is the executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution. That organization this year, 2019, issued a a landmark document called 21 Principles for 21st Century Prosecution. It's an important step forward. It contains a lot of what any prosecutor's office might want to consider doing uh, in a new, more considered age of the criminal justice system. So here is my conversation with Miriam Krinsky, of Fair and Just Prosecution. Hope you enjoy it. Americans know that if they want a better criminal justice system, prosecutors have to drive change. We've seen the election of more progressive prosecutors across the country, but what should this new wave of prosecutors do? What policies should shape their priorities? We'll discuss 21 principles for the 21st century prosecutor. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your policy justice nerd and explainer of all things in our messy and difficult criminal justice system. Also, really still super glad to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I want you to go back with me to 2014, to the deaths of Michael Brown in St. Louis County, Missouri, to Tamir Rice in Cleveland, to the cover-up of the videotape of the killing of Laquan McDonald in Chicago in that same time period. All of these cases were handled by veteran prosecutors in very safe seats. Bob McCulloch in St. Louis, Tim McGinty in Cleveland, Anita Alvarez in Chicago. And they all had long records as law and order prosecutors and were really considered beyond any political challenge. And of course, they handled these police shooting cases just as you would expect back then. McCulloch used his grand jury in unusual ways to avoid an indictment of the officer who was involved. McGinty did the same thing in Cleveland. And Alvarez was part of the city leadership that helped withhold the videotape of McDonald's death until a court finally forced that tape into public view. Those prosecutors are all gone now. They've all been replaced by far more progressive prosecutors who have pledged to do things much differently, to be fairer, to be more transparent, to address racial disparities in the system, and to reduce reliance on incarceration that has infected the criminal justice system for so long. Here's some audio I want you to hear. This is Kim Fox. She's the new state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois. She replaced Anita Alvarez. She's speaking at the City Club of Chicago in this audio. The original is from video that was produced by the Chicago Sun-Times. Take a listen. We know uh, that prosecution, the criminal justice system, is a human endeavor and is subject Uh, to getting it wrong. And I think for many people who believed for a long time that there was an unwillingness to right past wrongs, 
um, that there is such a willingness. So I think it speaks to the credibility of the legitimacy of the work that we're doing, and that means a lot. These prosecutors have a lot of company. All of a sudden, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia might be the most surprising new DA in the country, former defense attorney and civil rights lawyer, more accustomed to suing the police than working together with them, as a DA usually does. Much of the public in our largest cities has simply said, enough with the tough-on-crime, win-at-all-cost ways of the past. We want reform, and we know prosecutors have to help drive that reform. So the question is, what should a prosecutor's reform agenda look like? What principles should guide this new agenda? Much of it will be local, of course, and that's completely appropriate. Every prosecution operation in the United States, almost all of them, besides the federal system, they're all local. But what about the overarching goals for reform through prosecution? Our guest today heads an organization with some definite ideas on how to lead the way in these new times. Miriam Krinsky is a former federal prosecutor with 15 years of experience trying the highest-level criminal cases in both California and the Mid-Atlantic region. She served on state and local commissions in California, almost too numerous to mention, as well as on advisory bodies to the U.S. Solicitor General and the U.S. Department of Justice. She's one of those rare individuals with both wide and deep trial experience and experience with the large-scale mechanisms of the justice system itself, examining how to make those mechanisms like prosecution, policing, and defense work work right. She's now the executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution, an organization dedicated to lifting up and assisting elected prosecutors who believe in making the justice system more fair, equal, and effective. In doing this, Fair and Just Prosecution works particularly with newly elected prosecutors to get them on a path to act as pioneers and as guardians of a better system. At the end of 2018, Fair and Just Prosecution issued a groundbreaking report, 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor, a blueprint for how prosecutors can bring their constituencies a better, fairer, accountable and more effective criminal justice system and in the bargain reduce incarceration we're going to put a link to that report up on our website miriam krinsky welcome to criminal injustice well thank you david it's a great conversation and always a pleasure to have it with somebody like you i appreciate that begin by telling us just a little bit about how fair and just prosecution came to be? What was the genesis of the organization, and what's the mission of Fair and Just Prosecution? Well, as your remarks pointed out, this is an incredible new moment, and we have a a wind of change that's coming through the criminal justice system. Fair and Just Prosecution was founded as a nonprofit that tries to provide a place where these incredible new leaders who are bringing a different vision to the justice system can come together. It gives them a place where they can come and learn, where they can see innovation on the ground in action. We've taken them to places around the country um, and in the coming year are even going to look abroad for what different thinking and changing paradigms looks like. We also bring their voices together so that 
nationally as we're having this debate around what kind of justice system do we want? What, what does our country deserve and what should we own as a criminal justice system? Their voices can be there as a growing new normal that doesn't believe that a criminal justice system should be defined by incarcerating or punishing its way out of mental illness or out of substance use issues or out of poverty and, and many of the implications of poverty. They think differently, this incredible group that we work with, and we try to give them a community. Um, it is a tough job, and we want them to recognize that they're not alone as they're trying to turn the corner, um, that changing culture and blowing up the boxes and moving beyond how we've done things in the past and an autopilot that presumes that we can punish our way out of Right, all really, of autopilot, that's right, exactly. Yes, um, that, you know, that 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 can be done and that their election is only going to be as transformative as their ability to accomplish these changes. So we realize they're the best levers for change, that they control the front door of the justice system and all that follows. And we're trying to help them be better and successful in what they're trying to achieve. So there are other prosecutor organizations, too, in the country. The, the most notable, the one that everybody seems to know about most, is the National District Attorneys Association. What makes a fair and just prosecution so different? Uh, what, what gives it a different philosophy than the NDAA? Sure. Well, I think fundamentally, um, the prosecutors that we work with are different. Um, they, they don't subscribe to the old views of tough on crime or the war on drugs mentality. And, and it, that's not to say that every member of the NDAA does either. But our group, I think, is unique in terms of they come together around a common starting point, that for too long, the justice system's footprint has been too large, that we've tried to punish our way out of too much, that fairness and, and accountability and transparency hasn't always been the North Star, and that we need to do things differently. And our group also looks very different from the average prosecutor who's elected around the country. It used to be that only 1% of elected prosecutors were women of color. The majority of the DAs that we're working with, this new generation, are DAs um, of color. The majority of them are women. So they're bringing a fresh perspective that's more reflective of our community and that's trying to really sort of blow up the boxes and um, and hit the reset button and see where we can go as we try to do better by a community that's increasingly recognized that what we've done in the past just hasn't worked. And we can't keep living out that definition of insanity, of doing the same thing over and over again. And expecting different it. results, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it really is, as you said, a new moment, uh, a really different thing happening. I mean, uh, if you could sum it up, what do you attribute that to? Why is it happening now? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's a couple of things. I think that our community has started to realize over the years, starting in the fallout from the 80s and 90s when we were ramping up penalties and mandatory prison terms and um, trying to punish our way out of what was going on, on uh, in our neighborhoods. I think what we saw was a burgeoning prison population and no really commensurate benefit from that. We were destroying families. We were creating intergenerational cycles of incarceration. We were fracturing communities. And, and I think our community now realizes 
it just hasn't worked. And it's really hard to find anyone who doesn't know a friend, a family, a loved one, a neighbor who's been part of the justice system. And they've seen firsthand, they've been proximate to the damage that we've done. So I think there's a growing understanding. There's growing data around what hasn't worked. There's growing proximity to it. And I think for those who have watched the fiscal implications, it's it's created a bipartisan alliance around the need for change. Many have looked at it from a fiscal standpoint and realized we were throwing good money after bad and that we really haven't made communities safer. All we've done is filled our prisons and jails in ways that have put us on a pathway that is an outlier from any other country in the world. And, and that just really doesn't make sense. That is so true. You know, People will say sometimes, well, these folks who are interested in reform now, it's only about money, as if that's not legitimate. Um, and it certainly is different than just uh, the, the pure idea of we need to reform this because it's unjust. But the idea that you would have a confluence of right and left around things like mass incarceration and prosecution now, I think really does show you how distinctive our moment is. And you just can't keep doing the same things and expecting different or better results. We haven't made anybody safer. and We haven't made our communities better. And people on both sides are kind of recognizing that now all over the place. So your report, uh, the 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor, um, I see uh, two broad categories here, principles about reducing incarceration, and then there are principles for increasing fairness. Let's let's take the first one, reducing incarceration, because I think what a lot of people might wonder is, well, you know, legislatures in the federal system, Congress and the states, the state legislature, they're the ones who pass the laws and judges give out the sentences. Why is it the job of prosecutors to worry about mass incarceration? Why is it their job to think about this? Well, you know, I, I think as a starting point, um, they, for many decades, were part of the problem, and so they need to be part of the solution. Um, they helped create where we are now, and especially elected DAs, elected prosecutors, they have a powerful bully pulpit and an ability to lead in our community and to set a different pathway for criminal justice thinking and reform. And if they oppose it, it often is going to be the death knell for any change. But if they support it, it's an incredibly powerful voice for the need for change. I think they also, we need to recognize, are the gatekeepers. They, at the end of the day, are going to decide whether someone's life will be forever impacted by having been brought into the justice system. They can say no and fundamentally change what our justice system looks like and decide how to be smarter around who we bring into our justice system. And they can be the ones to decide where those scarce resources should be used when we say yes and when it is that an individual needs to be removed from the community. So I think they've got this powerful job and platform and megaphone that they can use and the, the crux of what we're trying to do is to get them to use that autonomy and that discretion and to get them to try to bring this new approach to how we think about when we avoid doing damage, that, that the criminal justice system essentially does so much collateral damage when it overextends itself. And that if we can reduce the footprint, if we can avoid criminalizing individuals 
who don't end up returning to our community in any better place and, in fact, impose a greater danger to the community when they come back. That, that starting point, at least let's do no harm, can, can fundamentally change so much. Absolutely. You know, a, a great example of what you're talking about here in my own state, Pennsylvania, uh, listeners will remember uh, how I like to point out to everyone how we're number one here in Pennsylvania, but unfortunately our number one category is life without parole sentences for kids, yeah. for juveniles, and, and for adults it's off the charts. Um, and a huge number of those life without parole sentences, they all come from one jurisdiction, and that's Philadelphia. Right. And Philadelphia was driven by tough-on-crime prosecutor named Lynn Abraham for a long time. And then after that, her, predis- her, her successor, excuse me, Seth Williams, who was supposed to be a reformer, did not turn out to be. And he continued many of those Uh, many of those policies. He's gone replaced by Krasner, who's going to take a very different tack on all of this stuff. And I think one of the reasons he's in office and people like him are in office is because people could see on really a local level uh, as well as a state level how this kind of point of view was damaging communities by relying so much on incarceration. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, we often don't give voters enough credit. I think prosecutors have been below the radar for too long. But now there are a number of groups that are trying to put a spotlight on who the DA is, yes. what that job is about, mm-hmm. and their autonomy and power. And once we educate voters, once we get them to vote down ballot and to use that knowledge, they're making very different choices as reflected in your comments earlier on about the incumbents who have been voted out. It, it's no longer a safe job. Anymore. That's right. It's no longer this starting point that once you have it, you're going to die in office. Um, now voters are thinking differently as they understand the clout of the position. Absolutely. So as I look at the recommendations about reducing incarceration, it looks like from various points of view, what the document is saying is that the, the point is to keep people and cases out of the system, minimizing their contact with the system. So more diversion, ending cash bail, keeping people with mental health issues and addiction issues out of the system, putting them in treatment. Is that the thrust to really just reduce contact with the system uh, to its lowest possible point? So it, it is, but not um, not formulaically. It's to do it in a smart way. You know, it's it's to be more aware of the ripple effect of those decisions, that every single decision about whether to charge or not to charge, not only forever changes the life of that individual, forever. I mean, a criminal conviction means all kinds of things. These days, it often means you'll be deported from the country. It means you will probably lose your job. You may well lose your housing. You may well never finish school if you're a young person who's been brought into the justice system. Your life will be destabilized by all of the positive influences that we know keep people from committing crime. So we've got to be smarter and and we've got to not go into, as as we both mentioned earlier, sort of that auto response that every single time somebody does something wrong, we can arrest our way out of it because that arrest and that incarceration isn't going to solve the underlying problem if the individual's struggling if they need help and support, if they need treatment, putting them into a jail cell 
is simply going to destabilize them, their family, their community, and then throw them right back into the community at greater risk of repeating the criminal conduct, having done absolutely nothing to attend to the underlying concern. So the starting point on our 21 principles is we need to be smarter. It's not that we never arrest. It's not that we never prosecute. But we recognize we've done it far too often and that we shouldn't be letting the criminal justice system fill a space that public health, that mental health, that social services should be filling. And the longer we keep doing that, we're letting all of those other systems off the hook, that it's cheaper to let them come in and help people. It's safer for our community. It's smarter for the individual. It's smarter for the entire community. Yeah. Let me pick up on something you said right at the end there. It's safer for the community. I could see uh, maybe an older, more traditional I don't mean older with age, just a more Uh traditional prosecutor or a constituent of a prosecutor uh, hears this and says, hmm, people are going to be kept out of the system. This is the idea is being smart, but won't allowing people who would have been charged with crimes, letting them out of the system. uh, Won't they commit crimes while out? Uh, Is what is the public safety evidence here? Because I think people are going to wonder about that, given the way we've done things for so long. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there has been kind of this brainwashing, essentially, that's gone on. Um, It certainly had happened in the 80s and the 90s that if we don't bring people into the criminal justice system, you know, crime in the streets will run rampant and um, and we will all our lives will be put at risk. That's right. I think that's a lot of the public reaction because people have been told that. Absolutely. And that's been the fear factor that's driven our mass incarceration. And I think the data and the research just hasn't supported that. I mean, we've seen, you know, for example, on cash bail, we've seen states um, that have eliminated cash bail and found a decrease in crime connected to understanding that incarcerating individuals for 24 or 48 hours, just that short period of time through a system that essentially says you're in jail until you can buy your way out. Yes. which is what a cash bail system essentially Absolutely. does. Mm-hmm. Even, even a short period of time, you know, studies by the Arnold Foundation and others have shown us that your criminogenic tendencies, your likelihood to increase crime in the future gets worse for even a short period of time in jail. Right, just a couple of days, that's right. Just a couple of days, just the impact of a couple of days for you to find, you know, the wherewithal, the, scrape the money together to get out of jail. Um, you know, Kentucky eliminated cash bail, eliminated money bail, and saw a decrease in crime. Other states have followed suit. And we've also seen studies that have looked at the fact that incarceration in the justice system is destabilizing. I mean, sometimes it's the right thing to do and it's the appropriate response. But when it overreaches, it puts people into a traumatic environment. It causes them to lose all of those positive you know, supports in their lives right. that help stabilize them. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be smarter about it. We have to you know, recognize that that old fear factor just hasn't played out in other countries. In the 80s and 90s, Germany was at the same place we were in terms of rates of incarceration. Is that and right? We went one oh. direction. And we went one direction, and they went the other. I and see. we're going to be bringing some of our group there to see how that's played out there, because they have adopted much more that view of restraint. Let's not criminalize young people. 
let's recognize brain science. Let's not embrace the view that we can punish our way out of all of these problems. And they haven't found crime running rampant. Instead, they found the opposite. While we, on the other hand, have paid billions of dollars for a, a system of corrections and a criminal justice system that really has damaged lives and kept people and their families from being able to find a pathway out of the struggles that they deal with. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Miriam Krinsky. She's executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution, and we're talking about her group's report, 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Nancy, and I'm calling from Connecticut. This is Trisha calling from Baltimore. Eric from Kingston, New York. Calling from D.C. From Orange, Virginia. Sunny Dayton, Ohio. Calling from Long Island. St. Paul, Minnesota. Los Angeles, California. Kahului, Hawaii. Christchurch, New Zealand. Sacramento. Philadelphia. Iowa City, Iowa. And I'm calling to ask you a question. question for you. I had a question about Miranda. I have a question about something I heard on the news. I've been wondering. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. I was wondering, wondering, and I was just curious. I am the question I have for you is... What I want to know I is, want to know... I'd love to hear more about... I would like for you to please explain... Hoping you can help me uh, understand... What are the laws about that? But I'd ask the expert. Got a question? Better call Dave. Call 412-407-3389. And ask Dave. That's 412-407-3389. Hi, David Harris with you on Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Miriam Krinsky. She's the executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution. That organization has issued a report called 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor. And we've been discussing some of those principles and how they can guide the progressive reform movement inside of our American prosecution system. Let's talk now for a minute, Miriam, about some of your uh, uh, recommendations about fairness. We we covered uh, incarceration. Uh, fairness, you recommend changing office culture and practice for prosecutors. What aspects of the current uh, culture or practices do you think needs changing? Sure. Well, you know, I think the first thing that we need to think about is how offices measure and define success, both success as an office and success individually. And um, and how do we reward individual prosecutors and what do we reward? Too often offices have counted and measured things like number of convictions or number of indictments or volume of cases. Even length and, of sentences. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and the sorts of things that really drive and send the message that how tough you are, quote unquote, um, is what defines your, your success and your performance in the office or how many trials you have under your belt um, is often what people talk about within offices. So we need fundamentally a new way, a new set of metrics, a new way to think about how do we reward and lift up more things like how often are you out in the community? How do people feel about the way that you've treated them? Witnesses, victims, and defendants who individuals on the other side of the courtroom. How often are you learning about and, and promoting deflection and diversion from the justice system? I think we also need to be changing culture by looking at ways for offices to do more to create that vital proximity to the people impacted by the justice system. What are offices doing to ensure that no prosecutor ever puts a person 
into a jail or prison facility until they've walked the halls of that facility, until they know the consequences of the weighty decisions and, and, and what they advocate for in the courtroom. Um, I think offices can change culture by being sure that their staff reflects the rich diversity of the community that they serve. And they'll do a better job that way, won't they? Absolutely. I think I think they'll they'll do a better job because, you know, we know that our views get impacted by those we're in contact with. And and if if we can expand our own horizons by different perspectives, different races, different genders, different world and life experiences, we're going to be better for it. And their credibility in the eyes of the community, the all-important trust that is the essence of an effective criminal justice system, and without which a criminal justice system can't function, that's going to be approved as well if offices take to heart all of these sorts of things that fundamentally will change their culture. Absolutely. You know, your your document also goes on to recommend addressing racial disparity. And I can just hear the voices of so many uh, uh, prosecutors who might say, look, we just take the cases that come to the door. The police bring them in. We sort through them. Uh, racial disparity might be the fault of the police, but it isn't our fault. What would you say to that? And what should prosecutors do? Well, so, you know, I think we know that that studies have shown that that's just not the case. Um, And that's not to say that we shouldn't be ever vigilant about policing uh, tactics that create in the first instance concerning racial disparities. And prosecutors certainly have a role. I mean, they shouldn't be hands off about practices of the police. Um, Law enforcement needs to be their partner, but they also need to have some distance and independence so that they can step in when law enforcement gets it wrong. And so they do have a job to play and a role to play when it comes to racial profiling or other practices. By well, law what is that job? What's that role? So, I, you know, I think that role is essentially um, to say to law enforcement, if we're seeing certain kinds of cases coming in that are dramatically racially disproportionate, we may think long and hard about whether we're going to keep prosecuting those cases. It's, it's to do what Marilyn Mosby did this week in Baltimore, where she looked at her community and said, I am seeing dramatic racial disproportionality. Over 90 percent of individuals being arrested and being presented to us for prosecution for marijuana use are black members of our community. Our black neighborhoods are being over-policed in that regard. And she put up a stop sign. She said, I am no longer going to prosecute these cases. It's not smart. It's not making our community safer. It's not an effective use of resources. Mm -hmm. And, and And it's fracturing trust with our communities who need to be able to look at law enforcement and look at the prosecutor and feel that they have the interests of everyone in their, their community in mind. So Absolutely. prosecutors have that, that powerful ability. And, and going back to your earlier question, prosecutors' offices also, we know, have exacerbated racial disparities. There was a study a couple of years ago, um, in, actually in 2017, from Loyola Law School, that looked at 30,000 cases um, in Wisconsin over a seven-year period. And what it found was that prosecutors were significantly impacting racial disparity in plea bargaining, where white defendants were 25% more likely than black defendants to have the most serious charge dropped or reduced, where in misdemeanor cases, white people 
um, were facing misdemeanor charges, nearly 75% um, were 75% more likely than black defendants to have their potential imprisonment dropped or dismissed or reduced to lesser charges. And, and there are other studies like that out there as well. We know that Ron Wright has looked at racial disparities in decisions by prosecutors in jury selection. Right. That's Ron their- Wright from uh, Wake Forest Law School, who's also been a guest here on Criminal Injustice, and he's looked at those things. He has, and he's done some terrific work that, you know, essentially shows that prosecutors are removing African-Americans, you know, in the jury pool um, twice as often as they're removing whites from the jury pool. So so we know from studies like that, and, and there are others as well, that, you know, prosecutors have a responsibility here. Their hands aren't clean. And they need to own the issue. They need to call it out. They need to be gathering data. They can't be a black box anymore. Oh, is that ever going. right? Got to gather yep. the data. Because if you don't have the data, you're in no position to say we don't have a problem. You're, you're in no position to say it. Your community is in no position to know it and understand it. So you don't just gather it. You have to put it out there. And, you know, what you measure is a yardstick of what you value. And so if you're ignoring it and not measuring it, you're essentially saying you don't care about it. And so, you know, prosecutors need to be willing to have the tough conversations around race. Um, It's not comfortable, but they have to own it and they have to lift it up and they have to put it front and center in everything our criminal justice system is doing. Or we're going to continue to have the kinds of you know, tragic events that you talked about in your introduction at the beginning as as a fractured relationship and starting point with communities of color who are simply going to feel that the criminal justice system works for only part of our society and not for all of our society. Absolutely. You, you know, your, your comment about Marilyn Mosby, who in late January made that announcement that her office would no longer be prosecuting marijuana cases. Um, you know, what was so telling about that to me was not just that she was saying we're not doing this because um, it, you know, it's a waste of money and so forth. But they actually also, she actually, I should say, made uh, a very compelling public safety argument, too. Yeah. She said, you, you know, let's not do this trash. Let's do the more serious cases. Let's do the cases of shootings and violence. And let's restore public trust that way because we won't have these racial disparities. We will not be focusing on people with some weed. Instead, we'll be doing the things that really matter to everyone. So it's a recalibration around what's important. It's, it's, it's that deep. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Baltimore is a community that has a high unsolved homicide rate. And I think, you know, as State's Attorney Mosby made clear, does she want to sit there and tell a mother who's lost her young child to a murder that has yet to be solved, perhaps has been waiting for years to be solved? We're all using our resources to go out and arrest and prosecute, you know, those pot users um, in predominantly black neighborhoods because that's where we're policing. Or does she want to be able to say we're using our scarce resources to get victims and witnesses in our community to trust us, to help us solve the murders, to come forward when bad things have happened. You know, it's a question of choices. And I think as Marilyn's announcement in late January made clear, we've been making the wrong choices for too long. And we need prosecutors elected such as her with the community's will and wind at her back 
to be bold and brave and stand up, even when law enforcement isn't always there yet, and say, we've got to do things differently. And it's our responsibility to do things differently. And as your comment pointed out, the public will be safer, not, you know, let us be driven by fear, but the public will be safer if we start doing things differently. So what kind of reaction are you getting among prosecutors as a community and among members of the public to uh, the 21 principles document? What are you what are you seeing coming from this in the early going and what do you see ahead? Well, so, you know, I think um, our aim with the principles document was to kind of take your um, your comments at the beginning and your label of progressive prosecutor and sort of unpack that, you know, answer the question that we often get asked, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what does that actually mean in practice? Exactly. I mean, is that an empty label that some are going to own and and others, you know, shy away from or 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 is it something substantive? And so we really struggled with how do we create a blueprint and a roadmap? How do we say in in enough depth that it means something and that people can find details and examples? Every principle has an example of somewhere in the country where it's playing out. So how do we give meaning to what this roadmap and this blueprint looks like? And how do we make it short enough that it's accessible and can educate you know, the public and, and the community and, and a broader field? How do we have something out there that people can look at and say, now I know what I should be asking um, candidates or my own DA to stand up to. Now I know what should be measured and what can be a yardstick of success. So how do we make it accessible while also being something that guides the field? And the reaction we've been getting has been, you know, thus far, incredibly positive. Um, you know, I, I think that, that prosecutors, newly elected uh, and others, are finding that it is giving them something to look to, to fill in you know, sort of those murky details of what does the finish line look like and and where do we want to go? Um, I think and I hope that it's getting out there in broader, uh, you know, consumption and giving members of our community a deeper understanding of what is a DA and and what do we want them to do? Um, We also have put this out in anticipation of a wonderful book on prosecution um, and this new wave, sort of this new generation you talked about, that's coming out at the beginning of April that Emily Bazelon, an accomplished journalist, um, has written. And Emily's book, I think, in very vivid and human detail is going to tell the story of what, why DAs matter and what it looks like when they do things right and what it looks like when they do things wrong. Wow. And her book's going to identify problems. And so Emily and I talked about it also, we need somewhere at the end of it, when people come away with this feeling of, oh my God, or wow, as you said, or frustration around how many things need to change. We, we want to offer up solutions in addition to just the problems. So this will also appear at the end of Emily's book as that roadmap, you know, kind of that answer sheet to now we know what's wrong. So how do we start to create a new vision for what's right? Uh-huh. And, and that's really what lays ahead for us. You know, how do we keep um, keep building this new normal and tackling the challenges ahead um, and realizing that, you know, the, the challenges and, you know, the, the kind of the, um, the the hill is a steep one, but with every new voice and every new election that brings somebody, you know, into the mix who believes that we need to, you know, walk up that 
that um, steep hill together, you know, it starts to become a little less steep and it mm-hmm. starts to permeate a little more. Absolutely. One final question before I let you go. Another thing, a related issue that fair and just prosecution has been involved with and is now on the record on is favoring what are called do not call lists, a list mm-hmm. within prosecutors' offices of officers who have police officers, that is, who have credibility problems and they should not be called to the stand. Um, in January, uh, fair and just prosecution gathered well over 50 justice system leaders, some current office holders, some current police chiefs, many who had been in the in the, in the service of uh, the criminal justice system for a long time and came out in support of this sort of arrangement as a way of keeping officers with with credibility issues, with violence issues uh, away from testifying in cases. Why did you do that? What's the objective and why do you think more offices should do that? Yeah, well, and thank you for that, because I think it's such an important issue. Um, and, and let me preface my response by saying I, I spent a year working inside a very large law enforcement department um, and came away with tremendous respect for the men and women, you know, who every day go out into the streets and risk their lives and wear the badge and, you know, and work to keep all of us safer. And, you know, they are really the essence of public service. but when there are some in those ranks who wear that badge, who carry a gun, um, who don't live up to the highest standards, who engage in acts of dishonesty, or even worse, um, they should no longer hold those jobs. It, it should be up to the leadership of those departments to not let them cast a shadow on the entire department. And when we think about the role of prosecutors, Prosecutors who are making those weighty decisions on where will the clout and, and the you know, dramatic weight of the criminal justice system come to bear should, should not be relying on individuals that we can't trust um, and that we can't put on the witness stand and that whose word isn't as golden as the vast majority of those who are on the other side of, of those you know, kind of lines of misconduct. So. So I think the whole point of a Brady or do not call list is that it's up to prosecutors to know and they need a way to know who those individuals are. They're not the norm. You know, they're not the everyday cop on the street. No, they're not. And I think everybody acknowledges that. Right. But unfortunately, they are out there just as, you know, individuals are sitting in our jails right now. Um, We know from the history of exonerations who didn't commit the crimes we've charged them with. So. Those are not the norms, but we shouldn't have a justice system that's willing to look the other way when those cases do come up. And so a do not call list, a Brady list that is supported not just by prosecutors, but also, as you mentioned in the letter that we put out in support of it, by by high up members of law enforcement, start with the premise that when individuals can't be trusted, when we know from their history that they've engaged in acts of dishonesty or misconduct that means they're not a credible witness, prosecutors shouldn't be taking cases from those individuals. And they need some mechanism to know who they are and know when a case comes through the door, whether it's coming from an individual whose past history suggests that they just shouldn't be relied upon in bringing those charges or executing a search warrant or relying on them in in any way at all. 
Miriam Krinsky, she's a veteran former prosecutor and executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution, an organization that has issued the document called 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutors. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Section. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Texas Lawyer and the ABA Journal News Online concerns Federal District Judge Lynn Hughes of the Southern District of Texas, sitting in Houston. The story starts some time ago when Judge Hughes threw out an indictment in the federal criminal case of United States versus Swenson. Judge Hughes tossed the case out, he said, because of discovery mistakes by the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Federal Prosecutor's Office in the Southern District of Texas. The lawyer in the case for the U.S. Attorney's Office, Tina Ansari, filed an appeal and she won with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ordering the indictment reinstated. But the appeals court also ordered the Swenson case assigned to a new judge because of some bad behavior by Judge Hughes. It seems that during the argument in front of Judge Hughes, in which he dismissed the indictment, Judge Hughes said this about federal prosecutors, quote, it was a lot simpler when you guys wore dark suits white shirts and navy ties. We didn't let girls do it in the old days. Close quote. Oh, yeah. Those judicial remarks went right into the appeal and the Fifth Circuit was not amused. It said that even if Judge Hughes was not referring to female prosecutors, and I don't know how he wouldn't be, the court the Fifth Circuit, that is, said, quote, such comments are demeaning, inappropriate, and beneath the dignity of a federal judge. Close quote. Wow, slap. Well, Judge Hughes clearly didn't like this, but rather than just bearing up and moving on, he couldn't resist more bad behavior. When federal prosecutor Tina Ansari showed up in his courtroom for a pretrial conference on a totally different case on January 14th of 2019, he told her she was excused. Then, according to the ABA Journal, Judge Hughes, quote, kicked her out of the courtroom on January 18th and said she would not be allowed to participate in the case. Close quote. When Ansari's boss, U.S. Attorney Ryan Fitzpatrick, asked Judge Hughes why he had banned Tina Ansari from the case, Judge Hughes said he was displeased with her winning the appeal in the Swenson case and indicated that he thought the Fifth Circuit's opinion was based on lies and misrepresentations. The U.S. Attorney's Office promptly moved to have Judge Hughes recuse himself. Predictably, he refused. No word yet on whether the decision will be appealed, but it would not be that surprising. When contacted by the Texas lawyer, Judge Hughes, again, just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He told the publication that the federal prosecutor's recusal motion was, quote, 
entirely a rehash of claims that the assistant made, that's Miss Ansari, which were the product of putting three sentences of the record together and claiming that they were addressed to her. Close quote. Yeah. Well, if Judge Hughes is listening, and I doubt that he is, there's only one piece of advice that I, or the chief judge of his court, or anyone else could give him. Your Honor, with all due respect, please shut up. Just shut up. What else can you say? That is Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Edition, and that closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Check out our website, www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call it in? Ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, that number is 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com.